fortress. God is our help and our strength. Again, turn to Psalm 46. I was just listening to Alistair Begg, and he talked about there being a dearth of churches in our culture that are dependent upon the Word of God, that make the Word of God central. And we have no other, we have another other recourse other than the Word of God. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, because of this, will not we fear, though the earth be removed. And then a few places earlier, Psalm 18, it says, in verse 2, verse starting in verse 1, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my strength, in whom I in whom I will trust, my buckler, the horn of my salvation, and my high tower, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. Psalm or not Psalm, but Isaiah chapter fifty nine. Behold the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. There is no lack of ability in our God. And now we open them up and we got the horns going. <laughs> so we are talking about, uh, in this first hour, we've been talking about systematic theology. We've been teaching systematic theology. I hope it's not been dry or boring, uh, but we have hit some some major things, and of course we're using John Frame's systematic theology as our, as our springboard. We're using his outlines and his, and, uh, and, and his presentation here as our springboard to talk about these issues uh, because I don't have, um, well, it's good, to, it's good to have someone who has already outlined it all, and then we can talk about it from there. Uh, so uh, we've relied heavily upon him at times, and we also kind of uh, kind of uh, went our own direction at times. And we have talked about the central theme of the scriptures being he is Lord. Amen? One out of every five verses in the Bible, a little greater than one out of every five verses in the Bible, will contain a direct affirmation of the Lord, of his lordship. And really the entirety of the Bible does God is Lord. What is the central, uh, the, the central thought in the Old Testament? Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. The Shema. Uh, what is the central message of the New Testament? Every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory. of, And that's the Christian declaration of faith. It's a, it, you shall profess with your mouth that 
the Lord Jesus, and that order is Lord Jesus, the double accused up there, that, the, that if you will confess Christ as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The confession of his lordship is central. So we began, that was our spring, that, that was the, the initial thought at which we started to unfold the scriptures. If that's the central theme, then all of our doctrine sooner or later must come back to the truth that he is Lord. So we have talked about his works, his works of creation, his works of providence, his works of uh, miracle, uh, his works of salvation. And then we have started talking about his attributes, uh, those things that can be that are attributed to him in Scripture. We've talked about his moral attributes. He is a good God. He is a loving God. He is a righteous God. He is a just God. He is a God that is angry with sin. He is a God of wrath. And those are not always comfortable things to think about, but we should. But that's a good place to start. He he is he is holy, in the sense of being righteous and set apart and different, uh, and the moral standard for all that that by which we are judged. And then we talked about his intellectual attributes. He is the wise God. He is the. Um, he has understanding. He is the basis of our knowledge. He knows all things. And we talked about his omniscience. And we looked at those that wanted to claim that he is not omniscient, even though the scriptures declare plainly and repeatedly that he is. And we have tried to answer those. Now we are dealing with the doctrine of his power. He is the Almighty. And there is no power other than His power. And we tried last week to just kind of talk about how this flows from this, this flows from the Lordship attribute of His control, but it also is connected with the attribute of His uh, Lordship attribute of His authority um, and His presence. That he is presently showing his power. We tried to talk about, well, what is omnipotence? Well, omnipotence, yeah, for, for an introduction to the idea of his omnipotence, he can do, God can do anything he pleases. Uh, Psalm 115 is the quintessential statement. He, God has done whatsoever pleased him in heaven and in earth. Uh, he can do whatsoever he pleases, and the idea that nothing is too hard for our God. And therefore, we, because of his great power, we have this great trust in him. What we just read was text that, 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 that demonstrate our, our, our trust in him. There is nothing that can keep God from saving us. When we read the... When we read the... Uh, the promises of Scripture that no man is able to pluck us from our hands, and that because of that, He has given us eternal life, and we shall never perish. We trust that because He is able to do it. Or as Paul would later say, He is able to save us. He's able to keep what we've committed unto us, 
uh, we have committed unto him against that day. Or as the writer of Hebrews would later say, he is able to save to the uttermost all that come to God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. So everything, everything about his omnipotence is very real to us that are trusting in him. Therefore, we, when we read the Psalms that we just read, it resonates with us, does it not? He is our strength. He is our strong tower. He is our mighty God. And therefore, we call upon him. Therefore, we love him. Therefore, we trust him. So he can do anything he pleases, and there is nothing too hard for him. And last week, we also took time to talk about what God can't do which is a stumbling block for some. As you know, you get to silly questions. Can God make a rock so big that he cannot lift and all that of those philosophical uh, word games? And we, we talked about what God, God cannot do logically contradictory actions. But why is that? It's because he has rational power that you and I do not have. I can't be consistent all the time. I just can't. In fact, if as in John Frame here in his systematic theology, he can't be consistent. He and and Aristotle and, and Aquinas could not be consistent. And and no scientist or no, there, there's no one completely perfectly. We don't have that ability. God cannot contradict because he has rational. He has he has rational power. God cannot. God also uh, lost my place here. Um, cannot do those immoral actions. God cannot lie, the scriptures say. Why can, why can God not lie? Well, because he has moral power. This is not, when we say that God cannot, that's just our language, our limited language in describing our God. He has moral power. You and I can right now decide I'm never going to sin again for the rest of my life. And how long will it last? Don't tell me. <laughs> All right. Will it last as long as you, I mean, will it last before you get out of the building today? Probably, uh, maybe, I hope so. Uh, but, but will it last for the rest of the day? Probably not. God doesn't lack moral power you, that you and I lack. So these are not, when, when we talk about inability, it's a very misleading term. He cannot, he cannot do actions that are, that are appropriate only for, there are actions that are appropriate only for finite creatures that God cannot do because he's God. Like, I can, I can build something that I cannot lift, <laughs> right? <laughs> but everything's under his power because he's God. God cannot make another God, <laughs> right? Um, th th those are things that, that, that are, there are actions that are appropriate for finite creatures that are not appropriate for God. God cannot deny himself, his own nature, to say that he cannot change his eternal plan, and he won't. That's why you and I are secure. So, so in thinking about what, can, what God cannot do, we should try uh, to couch this, and these are not things that are that are detriments to his power, but they are ex exhibitions of his power, his moral power, his rational power, and things of that nature. So now we're going to have to do the tricky thing of trying to define what we mean by omnipotence, because obviously omnipotence not, does not mean 
uh, God, well, how does someone start the entire, can God build a rock, can make a rock that he cannot, cannot lift? Is they start it by saying, well, God can do anything. And we know that that's not true because God can't lie. And God cannot deny himself. And God cannot break his covenant. God cannot, uh, you've got, there's things that scriptures uh, declare. So now we, well, now we need to define a little bit better what we mean by omnipotence. Omnipotence, and, and this becomes a tricky thing because we have a hard time in our language, like we just said. I mean, we, 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 when we talk about him not being able to lie, we say God cannot lie. And, and that word cannot automatically carries all kinds of baggage of inability that is, that, 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 that is not befitting for us to talk about God in that way. Uh, so what do we mean by omnipotence? Uh, we, we do not simply mean God can do anything, but we, he's limited in his nature, his, his omnipotent nature, his powerful nature. He's, he's limited in his, um, only by those things. And those are wonderful things because we can worship a God can, that cannot lie. Can you worship a God that can lie? And can deceive, uh, that, that can do evil, uh, that, that, that can cease to be. No, that such, a, such a being is not worthy of worship. Uh, and there's a reason why the God of the scriptures is worthy of worship. And, that, and that's what David is driving out there in Psalm 18. Uh, when he gives all these things about this great might of God. And he says, uh, and then he says, uh, uh, I will call upon him who is worthy. He's worthy because he's able. So how do we talk about God? Uh, there's different alternatives here. I'm not going to spend much time talking about these, but uh, um, uh, philosophers and, and Christian, Christian philosophers have batted this around. God is able to do whatever he wants. Well, that's true, uh, but that's... That's also true of elect angels and glorified saints and so on and so forth. Uh, I do what I want. Unfortunately, I'm not, I, I'm, uh, I, I, uh, there's a certain amount of freedom I have to describe uh, to myself. I do what I desire to do, and uh, that's what we mean by the will. Uh, we, we, we will choose our utmost desire. God is able to do anything that's logically possible. Um, but there are some actions excluded uh, fr from that, so that doesn't always fit as a way to talk about it. God can do what is possible. But, but the scriptures talk about him being able to do more. In fact, what did Jesus Christ himself say? He says, with men this is impossible. But with God all things are possible. So, so you, you see how hard it is to wrap language around this thing, uh, around our description of God. God has infinite power. Um, if that's true, right, he, his power isn't, if it's not to include power to perform actions that we've already excluded, <laughs> like lying. God has power over all things. Well, it's true. He's Lord. He's supreme. He's in control. But our original question, what can God do in the course of exerting this power? That's what we're trying to describe by the word omnipotence. 
God has more power than anyone else. Okay, true. Uh, that's a scriptural idea, but it doesn't necessarily drive at what we're trying to describe when we're describing his omnipotence. God can do anything compatible with his attributes. That might be a really good way. That's a good solution for some. Um, and it's maybe the best available way we can talk about it. God can do anything that is compatible with himself. Uh, that's a good way of talking about it. But even here, that is all of God's attributes can be construed as powers. Like, what is his knowledge but his power of knowing? What is his holiness but uh, what, 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 what is his uh, righteousness but his, power, but his moral power? We talked, talked about that a little bit. So when we're talking about God, we're talking about power <laughs> as a whole. There is no power but of God. Right? So you can see, and, I, and I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to boggle your mind or anything. I'm just trying to say that this is a very difficult thing, and we have to approach it very humbly. That when it comes to the nature of God's power, just like the nature of God's knowledge or the nature of God's righteousness, this is something that is beyond us. Again, what were we reading when we were talking about his understanding? He says, he says, submit your thoughts. Why? Because my thoughts are not your thoughts. Uh, the same may be said here about his power. Um, that, it's, that, 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 it is, that, it is, that it is still something in our minds that remains very abstract. But it's also very real to us and real to our faith. God's power is everything that he is. All his attributes as they are manifest to us is the power of God. Um, what did Jesus Christ say when he was, when he was in, uh, doing his earthly ministry? He talked about the power of God being, this, that, that, that if I am able to do this, this, is, this shows that the finger of God is at work. It's a it was a manifestation of his power, all that Christ was doing in his benevolence as he healed, as he, as he cast out and rescued people from demonic possession, as he did these, as he fed people, he was not only demonstrating his power, he was in his power demonstrating his goodness. So our definition boils down to, yeah, God can do whatever he wants to do. <laughs> and he's revealed to us what he wants to do. He wants to save you and me. And he's able to do that. He's righteous. He is our everything. And, 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 and he's doing a mar in his marvelous work of creation, providence, and redemption. Uh, we, uh, his, our ability to conceptualize that power is very difficult, but it's the ground of our worship. So let's talk about some particular things. I know like, uh, as, as you're saying, you're talking very abstractly. <laughs> and I am because I would, we wanted to find God's power. How do you do that? That's um, very difficult. But we know what God has said of himself. Uh, he has a purpose for revealing his power to us. 
Turn, if you will, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Oops. 1 Timothy, that's where it looks wrong. God does not reveal his omnipotence merely for us to engage in philosophical conversations about his omnipotence, <laughs> right? I, I think the scholastics of the Middle Ages uh, uh, thought, that, thought that the only purpose God made himself was known was for them to figure out how many angels can dance on the head of a pin or something like that, for them to engage in all this philosophical speculation. And I don't want us to think like that, or I don't want to think like that, but he... So, so it's it's when we're it's useless to engage in this idea that we can define his power, uh, or define what he might be able to do or might not be able to do. Let's stick with what he has revealed. As with all of his revelation, God wants the doctrine of omnipotence to edify his people, for us to be uh, encouraged by his power. And that's what Isaiah was driving at. Is his hand shortened that he cannot save us? We feel defeated, right? We feel, we feel down, we feel low, but we are in the hands of a mighty God who is able. So it's meant for our edification here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect. Thoroughly furnished unto all good works. What is, what, is, what, what is the purpose of him revealing his power to us is the same as his, as his purpose in revealing all things about himself to us. That we can go and do. That we can be reproved. That we can be corrected. That we can receive instructions for our life. And that we can go about doing what God wants us to do. That's the encouragement of his power. And it drives us to worship him. Um, and to govern our lives according to our expectations of what he's able to do. Go back over to Ephesians. God reveals his power. I've said this a thousand times and I want to say it again because I believe wholeheartedly there are no dry and dusty doctrines. Every doctrine is practical to us. Amen? If he says something about his power, that should be lived practically out in our lives. Ephesians chapter 3. We read this last week. We'll read it again. Where he says, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think, according to the power that works in us, unto him be glory forever and ever, or glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Uh, so he's able to do. So we should be asking him to do. What was that famous missionary quote? Uh, I forgot it. And I had it in my mind just a second ago. Uh, uh, it was like William Carey that said something that was along this line. Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Yeah, that's what it was. Uh, that, that's the powerful, that's the outworking of the doctrine of his omnipotence. What are you trying to do for God? 
Are you trying to do anything? I'm not asking. I don't want you to, uh, like, like, that's rhetorical. You don't have to confess, what, <laughs> confess one way or another to me. But I'm just saying, what are you trying to do for God? And if you're not trying to do anything God for God, why not? When you have this nice little doctrine called the omnipotence of God, coupled with all the other doctrines of God's love and his mercy toward you and his promises and his covenant toward you, why do we not rest in his power and do that's a searching question to myself as I says that comes out of my lips <laughs> I, I want I'm preaching to myself this morning so this is not a dry dusty doctrine that there's just something that, that theologians and Christian philosophers sit around and bat around well let's talk about this oh let, let's figure out how to define his power and, and, and all this uh, no, it's meant for us to live by. It shapes our expectations. We mentioned just a second ago about our expectations that he's going to keep us. But is those the only kind of promises that he's made? Is those the only kind of promises that we have that, uh, that, that, uh, that, that are applicable to how we process our life? Are there not promises? Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. Uh, all, all, there, there are promises in the scriptures and God is able to perform them. When, when uh, chapter Let's, let's talk about soul winning for a second. And this isn't a, well, I, I, I'm not going to get bogged down with that thought. But remember when, when Christ said, uh, with man this is impossible, with God all things are possible, what was he talking about? He was talking about who could or couldn't be saved, Right? They wanted to limit it. They wanted to say, well, obviously salvation is for those that are winnable. And that rich man, young man, he was winnable. He was coming to you, and he had the means to repent rightly. And we said, well, it's too hard for him. <laughs> it's like, there was no one that's winnable, but God's able to save. All. What is impossible with men is possible with God. You know, redemption, your salvation itself is an impossible thing. It was impossible for you to be saved when you stood. When We're going all the way back with what we talked about with the moral attributes of God. We stand before a God that hates sin and we're sinners. We're saying, we're, so we stand before a just God that must judge sin and we're sinful. We stand before a good God that will not dwell with sin, and we're unrighteous. And we have nothing to plead for ourselves, and just as Jesus Christ saved us uh, in, in the sense of, of, of showing God's wisdom, he says Christ is not only the wisdom of God, but he's the power of God in our salvation. 
the gospel itself is the power of God unto salvation to all that believe it. What does that mean? It's what is able to save the sinner. It's not just wise, it's powerful. The Greeks seek wisdom or, and, and uh, so on and so forth, but Christ is the wisdom of God, the power of God. And what, 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 what a wonderful thought about our salvation. I want to try to try to hurry and get through a few points here. Um, the power of God is displayed all throughout our salvation. There is, there, there is no power of, human, uh, of humankind or there is no power exhibited in the center. Over and over again in the grand story of God working redemption and bringing the seed, uh, the, the seed into the world, he is doing so by doing that which is impossible for men. Going back to the birth of Isaac, you're going to have a kid. Well, I'm 100. And my wife's ninety. Well, you're going to have a kid, I'm gonna, and that seed is going, and that child is going to is going to to bring forth that which is that which is uh, that that which was will uh, be a blessing to all nations. It was impossible, but he staggered not at the promises of God, and he believed that God was able to call that which was not as though it was. Therefore, what did he say to Sarah? He says, nothing's too hard for me. Is anything too hard for me? As she laughed in the tent, is anything too hard? I'll visit you in another year and you'll have a baby. And then we come to the book of Luke, chapter 1. How can that be? said Mary. What did the angel say to her? Nothing is impossible with God. You see the connection? From beginning to end, everything that was done to bring forth sal bring salvation into this world was done because undergirding it was a powerful God that was able his word will not return to him void. When it says, is there anything too hard for God? When he spoke there to Sarah as she laughed in the, from the tent, is there anything too hard for God? That word, that, that, that word anything, devar, is there any matter, that, is there any word that is void of God's power? Any word of God void of power, rather. His word will not return void. It will always accomplish what it sets out. He does the impossible. And we saw that again as we, as we looked at the scriptures last week of Ephesians chapter 1. What did it say about the bringing forth of Christ? Where it says here, in verse chapter Ephesians one, where he says that the God in verse seventeen that the God of our Father Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the Spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of His calling, what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power 
to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power. What was this working of his mighty power? Which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above principalities and powers and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but also in that which is to come and has put all things under his feet. All of this, the great display of his power in Jesus Christ. So, I want to make this point, and then next week we're going to spend some time talking about the will of God and salvation. But uh, how is this power shown to us? Turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'll take about five minutes. I want to talk about power and weakness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Familiar scriptures, no doubt. I just heard uh, I th- uh, someone say, uh, James White, say that um, every seminary ought to have to take a, a refresher course on 1 Corinthians 1 at least once every semester, just so they will not worship the wisdom of men, but the wisdom of God. I think it would be good for all of us every once in a while to read through 1 Corinthians 1 so we do not trust our own power and wisdom, but only the wisdom and power of our God. That's just a good chapter to go to. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25. Because the foolishness of God. What? Let's just stop there for a second. (laughs) The foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God. Wait, we've been talking about him being omnipotent all this time. Why is he using terms? The foolishness of God, the weakness of God. The weakness of God is stronger than men. And then he goes on to talk about the state of the church. For you see your calling, brother. Look at your, look at your ministry. There's not many wise. There's not many mighty. There's not many noble. But God chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. What are we talking about? The foolishness of God, the weakness of God. We have this idea that God is just doing all things by demonstrating his brute strength. That's not how God has chosen to work. Going back to that 100-year-old man and that 90-year-old woman. Weak things, right? How is God weak? What's he talking about here? Well, he's talking about the cross. Right? He's talking about the cross. He's talking about God came, manifest himself in the flesh, and humbled himself to die even the death of the cross. The creator allowed his own creatures to nail him to a cross spit upon him, mock him. The weakness of God. It's, it's, still, it's still the butt of many jokes in this wicked world. People laugh, people mock. People call, call, call the people who believe it stupid, ignorant. 
insignificant. And therefore, Paul says, okay, fine. The foolishness of God, the weakness of God, what is that? It's this cross idea. Do we, when, you, when, when we look at the cross, do we think power? Well, that's what Paul would later say. He says, the gospel is the power. Right there, the weakness of God being displayed, that's what's able to save us. God's power lies in the medium of preaching the gospel. We're, we, we, he, he says right, right here, we preach Christ, verse 23 of the same, we, we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews, a stumbling block unto the Greeks. Foolishness. So, he has chosen the preaching of the gospel. What is the preaching of the gospel? I know we... We got the big names in the world that thinks they think they have real big mighty ministries and their word is going forth and, and you have the Rick Warrens. I've trained one million pastors and my ministry is this and that. Uh, half to the week. <laughs> Nothing. But what do you know how the gospel's gone forward for two thousand years? Weak pathetic people who simply believed God and continued to share that generation after generation. It's how it's been done. People despised, people rejected, and yet for 2,000 years ago, the gospel is still preached. People are still being saved. The weakness of God, the foolishness of God, greater. How is God, 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 God hasn't come down like a mighty brute and, and breaking all things to his will. God came humble. And that humility was able to save us. The weakness of God. And it's important for us to realize that that is the way God has, the greatest way that God has described, that used to, to show his power was on a bleeding Savior on a cross and an empty tomb and a handful of cowardly apostles. And he's, he's turned this world upside down with it and will yet do so as his kingdom moves forward and that mountain crushes the kingdoms of this world. I hope you received something from the Word of God this morning. Any questions, complaints, grievances? Got it all figured out, huh? <laughs> all right, well, we're going to spend one more week on the power of God, and uh, we'll talk about God's will. Because some people say, well, if, if God's so powerful, then why are people still sinning? And why, is, why, why are children getting hurt? And why, are, why, why all this is happening well, if God's so powerful? We'll talk about that, and then we're going to get into his eternality after that. God is eternal unto the king, eternal, immortal. All right, questions?
Comments? All right. Well, we got about five, we got about 15 minutes and then we'll have the church hour.